0: So why do conflicts take place? Well, the answer to that is because somebody didn't get what they wanted, and a conflict ensues. These are the unfortunate things that continually happen in everyone's lives, whether it's the secular or Christian realm. We've often said that Satan, if he wants to destroy... What God is doing, attacking the church, attacking Christians from the outside, is quite ineffective. God makes it very clear that the thing that actually can destroy is things that take place from within. Thank you, sir. And we're going to be looking at this morning, why do conflicts exist? And then when they do exist, how do you repair when conflicts happen? I think about multiple biblical examples of this. Good, godly people wanting to serve the Lord in ministry, but somehow conflict gets in the way. I think about Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas' name was encourager. I mean, that's what the word Barnabas means. And uh, Paul and Barnabas had a tremendous relationship, and they were working together, but uh, uh, all of a sudden Paul says, hey, uh, I, we're heading out on a missionary journey, and I'd really like to take Silas with me. And Barnabas says, well, no, Paul, uh, you know, I like that guy, John Mark guy. He's, he's Man, he's, he's really a go-getter. And Paul says, wait a minute, Barnabas. And Paul get I mean, Paul, godly guy, missionary, preacher, evangelist, and, and, and Paul says, wait a second here, Barney boy. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not taking John Mark on the missionary journey because on the last time I took him with me, that little stinker left me. Yeah, I mean, he quit. I'm not taking a quitter on it. Uh, folks, this is a real scenario in the Bible. Um uh, Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas have a tiff. And uh, Acts 15.36, then after some days Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Markham in mean, Acts 15.37, but Paul insisted. Paul said, uh-uh buddy, I'm the boss, here. you're, you're going to do it my way. And Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention, the contention became so sharp. Folks, we're talking about godly men who both want to serve the Lord. They both have a great idea of what to do. They both want to do mission work. And yet the Bible says the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. I mean, like, serious? Why did God put that in the Bible? Why did he put that in there? Why did he point out these two godly guys that were really in and of themselves, if you check their character, were top-notch individuals? And the contention became so sharp that they parted. So Barnabas took Mark, sailed to Cyprus, uh, but... Uh, What else happened? Paul took Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. Now, I will tell you this, and we're not going to go through it all because this is basically just to get our attention this morning as to contentions that take place among God's people. All of them did make up later in Scripture and actually began to work together again. But boy, I mean, for a time it was bad. Horrible thing took place. I think about two men worked together, loved each other, were in the ministry together. They spent literally day and night together for several years. There's a strong bond between these two men. And God used both of these individuals, one more than another, in absolutely tremendous, wonderful ways. And all of a sudden, the going got a little bit tough. And the one person stood for right, stood for what he knew must take place. But his buddy, his close friend, got scared. And because the leadership of this other person was so strong, he, he wasn't uncompromising. There was nothing he wouldn't do for the causes of God. And the other person wanted with all his heart to do right and tried to uh, uh, to stick with this person, but all of a sudden it just became so fearful, became so scared of what might happen if he kept his association with this person. And finally he says enough. I've had enough. I I can't support this anymore. And uh, the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 22 what took place. And in Luke 22, Peter said, I do not know what you are saying. Three times Peter denies the one that he had spent years with, suffered with, taught with. I don't know this man. Betrayal took place. The cock crows the third time. Peter is devastated by what he knows was horribly wrong. In Luke chapter 22, verse 60, but Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know this, Jesus. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. What was the result of an individual who loved the Lord, basically made a huge, massive mistake? What was the result of that? Verse 62, Luke 22, so Peter went out and, you know the word, wept bitterly. Peter was a man's man. Tough guy, outdoorsman, fisherman. A bit crass at times. And yet he got scared. He betrayed the one that he loved and cared about. And when he realized his error, he changed his mind about what he had done. He knew that he had done wrong. And Peter's heart was broke. And the Bible tells us that he goes out and he wept bitterly. Well, this morning we're going to examine the biblical meaning of repentance. This has been an issue. It's uh, I've I've heard many debate even among some of our folks here regarding what is repentance. And uh, we're going to go to Second Corinthians. If you want to take your Bibles, go to chapter seven. We're going to look at what biblical New Testament repentance is today. What does it refer to? How is it used? And uh, 2 Corinthians 7 actually uses this particular word, and the context is very clear. So if you got your Bibles, we're going to read the passage together, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Again, folks, uh, I encourage you to bring your Bibles with you, or if uh, you like to use the electronic versions, so be it. Uh, but boy, I always have a Bible handy. We cannot be biblically literate if we do not know what's inside this precious book. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, "...therefore, Paul says, having these promises, beloved..." I like that word, beloved. He's talking God's people. He loves them. "...let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts." to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, Verse 7, chapter 7 of Second Corinthians. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me. Keep in mind, Second Corinthians is majoring on the topic of conflict between the Corinthian church and the apostle Paul. Massive important point here contextually. Verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, and we'll talk about that in a minute, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice that you, Corinthian believers, were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to what? Corinthian who? Believers. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces what? Repentance. And now here's where you got to be very very careful how you read this. And We're going to spend some time on this in a few moments. For godly sorrow produces repentance. Now there's uh, the next word. Is it italicized in your copy? It is. All right, for godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation. I'm skipping the italicized word, not to be regretted. Now, we're going to explain that because, boy, uh, linguistically, grammatically, uh, there's some challenges here. And you can come up with a very wrong conclusion if we don't get the grammar right. And we're going to spend time on that. So we're just going to read it as is right now. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, I don't like that comma there, by the way. By the way, in the original manuscripts, there were no grammat- or, uh, no commas, periods, so forth, in the Scriptures. Every single time you see one, that's an insertion by a translator. So very important. For you were made sorry, sorrow uh, in a godly manner, verse uh, 9 again, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death A couple more verses for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner what diligence it produced in you what clearing of yourselves what indignation what fear what vehement desire what zeal what vindication in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this manner father I pray now that as we open the word of God as we carefully look At one of the huge issues that is a constant within the Christian church, it's a constant within, unfortunately, many families. It's a constant that Satan has been using for years to try and disrupt relationships, families, Christian businesses, and relationships even with the Lord himself. So I pray, Lord, as we carefully examine this passage, that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, I know, I absolutely know in a crowd this size that there are conflicts that are taking place as I speak. There's families that are in conflict. There's individuals that are in conflict. And Lord, I pray that as we examine these biblical principles, that we look at how things should be done according to your word, that Lord, somehow we might figure out what's the right way to handle conflict? What's the way to gain restoration. What's the way for those who have gone into sin to be restored to the Lord? So, Father, speak to our hearts this morning. We commit it all to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Corinthians chapter 7 then says, Therefore, having these promises, going all the way back through what Paul had talked about in the first six chapters, by the way, if you've got about uh, 20 hours, you can go through my messages on the first six hours, and you'll know all what he was talking about. Uh, so we won't do that this morning, but he says, Therefore, having these promises, And he brings out that word beloved. Who is Paul talking to here? Well, he's talking to the believers. He's talking to the beloved. He's talking to these individuals that have been giving him a hard time, quite frankly, even though they were God's people. The Corinthian church, and we've gone through this now week after week after week as we go verse by verse through this book, tremendous conflict existed between certain folks in that Corinthian church and Paul. Paul. Paul is reaffirming his love once again for these people. He's like, I, and, I, and I get this. Folks, and I was thinking about this driving in this morning. I was thinking about conflict and how often am I involved as a pastor in conflict. I'm going to be straightforward with you. And this happens virtually, I'm guessing, based on my interaction with a whole lot of pastors over a whole lot of years. I deal with conflict literally 365 days a year. Every day. Every day, something, someone, some people, some group, some family, some individuals, there's conflict. And it's the conflict is strong enough that I'm contacted. And folks, this is a it, it Literally, it may not be I get contacted every day, but every single day as a pastor, I'm involved with folks that are in conflict, and I'm constantly aware of it, constantly trying to think, what's the next step? How can we help these folks? So you say, well, wait a minute. You're pointing me out, pastor. You, you, you shouldn't do that. No, I'm not pointing anybody out. You see, folks, this is a very, 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 very common thing. In fact, as I stated, 365 days a year I deal with folks that are in conflict. It's constant. And when we go back to this issue of why does conflict exist, the very simple answer to that is because somebody didn't get something they wanted. I want this. I want this position. I want this job. I want this grade. Valerie and I about, oh boy, I don't remember how many years ago, I don't know if you remember, we were on a a little boat out in the middle of the sea, and uh, unfortunately I had my cell phone with me, my electronic leash. And I was uh, working on um, my first doctorate, and that stinker of a professor sends me back one of my papers. Now, folks, I'm used to getting straight A's. It's just, you know, not that I'm smart, but I work hard. Got F. I got what? Got crooked F. Yeah, crooked F. And, uh, <laughs> and I mean, on my vacation, I get this email from one professor and he says, well, you said, I, I read your work and I'm not accepting it. I'm like, What? you know how many hours I spent on that paper and doing whatever I did? And I i mean, this happened like the first day of our vacation, and I mean, I'm in some serious conflict with this guy. <laughs> I mean, uh, he just, I mean, literally, for the whole week, guess where my brain was? I mean, it's like I tried every way to figure out how to eliminate, no. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, just... Absolutely consuming. Well, I rewrote the paper when I got back home turned it in and uh, everything went fine, but it was like, boy, I mean, something as silly as that. Boy, I wanted that guy's blood. Like, don't you dare say that to me. You will accept my paper. You know, I don't have time for this. Now, now that's a silly illustration, but I'll tell you, I was in deep conflict. I'm mad. I was upset. Uh, to the point where it ruined a week of what should have been a glorious vacation. And, and and the Apostle Paul says, listen, beloved, let's start out with this. Let us do what? Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Yesterday when I was speaking at uh, a Good News Bible Church up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, where we had the prophecy conference, and uh, th- these issues just became loud and clear uh, uh, about conflicts that exist between what we're going to call massive legalism that took place in the past versus uh, what now the culture of Christianity has changed from. You will do this. You will do that. You won't do this. You won't do that. To over here with the with the newer generation saying we're going to do whatever we feel like. They're in church. We're in church. They're in church now. And there's this conflict that exists with authority today. And it's very difficult, especially for young people that are indoctrinated from the media, from school, from internet, from Facebook, from Twitter, from TikTok. It's very very difficult for them at times to accept authority. They don't like police. They don't like Uh, uh, folks that have any type of authority. It's like you push back, you push back, you push back. And here's the issue. Why am I bringing that up? Because back here, back in the 70s and 80s and 60s, everything was about you will follow authority. And that resulted in pastors literally becoming gods in the pulpit. False gods. Small g gods. And it was like if the pastor said it, uh, and, and pastors would say, and there's still some churches that do this, and boy, I get upset with that big time. Uh, pastors would say, you will listen to me. You will do what I say. And if you go, there's constitutions, and I brought this up a few weeks ago, that exist in some churches today that say, if you ever speak anything negative about what the pastor says, you will be church disciplined. And I say, what? I mean, that's about as unbiblical as it gets. But then we have the other issue of, well, we should challenge authority. Just to challenge it. Push back. And and it's like, what is God saying here? So the reason I'm bringing that up culturally is because where we should be is God is saying now, and he's giving something that to many, maybe some in this room, it's like, wait a minute, why do I have to do that? What does he say? Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, Perfecting what? What's the next word? Holiness. Now, holiness means a complete separation from, if you will, that which is wrong, ungodly, evil. I'm not talking about second-degree separation here. We're talking about things that God specifically says as God's people we shouldn't do. Colossians chapter 3 gives us some insight. But now you yourselves are to put off. He's talking to Christians. These are things that God has asked me and you not to do. Put off, Christian, all these. Anger, conflict. Wrath, conflict. Malice, conflict. Blasphemy. Filthy language, conflict out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Why do people lie to one another? They want to get what they want to get. Or they don't want to get punished or accept accountability. God says, don't lie. That's part of the old man. And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Ephesians, companion passage, again from Paul. But you have not so learned Christ. Let me see. You have not so learned Christ. Who do you think he's talking to here? God's people. Verse 21, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you... Christian, put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Uh, Back in the day, I used to, every time somebody would ask me to, Sign a book or a Bible. I always put this down. Now I've switched to Second Timothy two fifteen, but uh, back in the day I wrote this: First Peter 1:14 to sixteen, as obedient what children. Some of you bristle at that. Maybe as an adult, it's like, wait a minute, I'm not a child. I am. I am. You say, well, yeah, you act like one, but that's not my point. No, uh, a childlike faith. A childlike heart towards the Lord. It's my heavenly, what? what is, what is his name starts with an F? I say the heavenly Father. It's like I'm just a little boy, and I need my daddy. I need my Abba Father, which means my heavenly Papa. I need my father. And I'm just a little boy that needs to be guided. I need him to hold my hand and to walk me through life just like you do. There's nothing wrong with being God's child. And uh, God says, listen, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. Why is God saying this? He's saying it because when me and you trusted, and if you've not placed your faith and trust in Christ, we'll give you how to do that at the end of the message. But if you're here and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt if you died you go to heaven, you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. We can mess up. Now, some of you are shocked by that. Like, I'm perfect. No, nah, I know nobody thinks that. We try, but we fall. We try, but we fail. And he says, listen, uh, uh, Christian, uh, uh, don't conform yourself to what used to take place in the former lust when you were ignorant. He's like, well, that's a pretty strong word being called ignorant. Ignorance simply means you don't understand something. You you, you haven't been taught it. It's not really a bad word to be called ignorant. Now, I shouldn't say this word, but if somebody says you're, and I excuse the word, stupid, that's really implying you know something, but you refuse to do it. Ignorance means you absolutely don't know about it, so you're ignorant. Before we trusted Christ, we were ignorant. Ignorant. We didn't know things that we should know. But as he who has called you as holy, separated, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So uh, uh, Paul says, listen, Corinthians, here's first one. And if you read 1 Corinthians, was was the Corinthians, was that culture bad? I mean, it was immoral. Temple prostitutes, idolatry, drunkenness. I mean, it was off the charts like a, a bad nightclub. I mean, that was their culture. And, and he's like, listen, you lived in that mess. You lived in that uh, a type of a city that was constantly tempting you to do wrong. But you were ignorant back then, but now you know Christ. And here's what he says. Listen, Corinthians, verse 2. Would you open your hearts to us? Paul now makes another defense, and he's constantly trying to defend himself in the in, uh, 2 Corinthians because they kept getting after him. Paul says, listen, We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I hope we can all say that along with Paul. Verse 3, I, Paul, do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you, Corinthian Christians, you're in our hearts to die together and live together. Folks, do you understand how important this is as God's people? When you look around this room this morning, every single person in this room ought to be someone that you would absolutely do anything you could to support and love in this building. Now, that can certainly branch outside the four walls of the church here, but here's the thing. Conflict. ah, It just causes so much turmoil. And when people get locked in on this is what I want and uh, you're not about to compromise on that and the other person is not about to compromise on that what happens? Explosion how do we avoid that? Well let's move on Charles Spurgeon. How many of you heard of Charles Spurgeon? All right, good bunch of you. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of past couple generations. Charles Spurgeon, great preacher, unwavering defense of biblical truth earned him many enemies. Speaking of the vicious attacks he endured, Spurgeon said, scarce a day rolls over my head in which the most villainous abuse, the most fearful slander is not uttered against me, both privately and by the public press. Every engine is employed to put down God's minister Every lie that man can invent is hurled at me, so here you got another guy i mean you got the 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 apostle Paul talking about it now you got this great teacher, great preacher, one of the great builders of uh, of the churches uh, or a church in England. I mean this guy is the prince of preachers, and here he's saying listen it 's every single day, every day it 's conflict, every day the media's coming after me. Boy, I I know about that. Every day the media is coming after me. Every day lies are being told. And it's conflict, conflict, conflict. And folks, you, you don't have to be Charles Spurgeon to experience what he's experienced. And many of you in this room experience exactly what he's talking about here. You're trying to do right. You try to do the right thing, and yet conflict sneaks in. And how do people respond to that? Not good. I worked with one major politician for multiple years. And man, this guy was attacked hard. And I, I honestly, and I knew him well, and it, it was like, you know, he, he just seems to be doing remarkably well. And uh, Valerie had a conversation with his wife. And she said, he's not as strong as he appears on the outside. And his wife knew him, of course, intimately and all the media which absolutely blasted this individual for things quite frankly that were wrong. He, he had done nothing wrong but they blasted the living fire out of him. And he'd go home and crumble. He'd get up in the morning put on his game face and go out and face it again. Now folks I'm going to say a name and this is not the person I'm talking about but Whether you like this person or not, and I know it's going to be a bifurcated, some will love him, some will not love him in this room. Think about a guy named Donald Trump, former President of the United States. Forget whether you like him or not right now. Imagine someone, oh, excuse me, not someone, but half the country coming after you trying to indict you saying things some maybe true maybe not that's for the court systems to determine how in the world do you hold up under that kind of attack i'm like, and again i'm not saying you should love him or hate him i'm simply saying how does a, how does a guy like that not say forget it i'm done I'm going underground. I, I mean, I'll take some money. I'm going to go hide. I'm going to close myself in a room. Can you imagine being attacked day and night like that? Now, that, now that's a, a public example of somebody that's just been absolutely vilified. And again, whether you love them or hate them, it's not the point. The point is, how would you like to be that person being attacked like that? I wouldn't. It's tough. Well, let's move on. Chapter uh, 7, verse 4, great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. Paul's saying, listen, yeah, we had conflict. We had trouble. But uh, I I sent Titus out there, and it talks about it uh, in in, uh, Galatians. And and, and Paul sends Titus out there to the Corinthian church, and, and he's like, find out how that church is doing. Well, we're going to find out he got a good report. Things were changing. They were repentant, or they had a changed attitude, a changed mind towards Paul, whom before they were not too happy with. Great is my boldness of speech, he says. Last part of the verse. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. He's like, we're we're, we're fighting for the gospel, we're trying to do right, and yet we're still attacked. I'm attacked! They're coming after me. But he's like, praise the Lord, let's keep on fighting. This was the kind of guy that likes to jump in front of bullets. I don't like jumping in front of bullets. But he did. And he's like, man, bring it on. I'm just, I mean, you come after me. I'm just going to get charged up. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep serving God. Verse 5, for indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were, what's the word? Conflicts, inside were fears. Paul's saying, listen, uh, uh, just in my daily walk. Now put this into your own life. Let's make it practical. You do what you do. You go to where you go. You take part in your life. And many of you, and again, I don't know who, when I use these terms, I'm speaking generally. Many of you, you wake up And your mind is absolutely going to a bad place. You know the conflicts that you're currently under. You know what you're going to face that day. And it hurts, and you're upset, and you're sick, and you haven't even gotten out of bed yet. It's like, how am I going to make it through? Paul says, Listen, we're troubled on every side, we're going through horrible conflicts. He says, I'm scared to death sometimes. I'm scared. I don't know how to make it. I don't know how. You been there? Are you there? How am I going to make it? Why are the suicide rates so high? Why is the violence so high? Why is the drug rate so high? Why is alcoholism so high? Why is domestic violence so high? Why all these things there because (laughs) that old devil says I'm gonna do everything I can to mess your lives up, Christian and non-Christian alike. I'm gonna put every temptation in the way to try and get your mind off of Christ. I'm gonna do everything I can to take you away from Colossians three, which says, Such your mind on things above, not on things of this earth, and we get sucked into the vacuum of depression and despair and conflict and fears and it's the exact opposite of what God intends for you which is to have the peace of God which passes all understanding verse 6 nevertheless God (laughs) he does what he comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus how did God comfort Paul he said hey I'm going to send Paul to you he's a good guy he's going to encourage you he's going to get in there folks you know you need encouragement on occasion do you of course you do and you find that person I mean some people good night I know the second I see them and nobody in this church of course but uh, uh, I I know the second I run into them on the street or I run into them someplace man it's going to be a rough old time trying to make them smile I like going to certain restaurants and uh, uh, you got the waiter the waitress there and I mean it's always I'm like how do you get any tips acting like that But uh, I make it my goal to make them smile, and uh, you talk to them, and all of a sudden they realize, and boy, we've had, and and Valerie can attest to this, uh, we uh, uh, we, we, we like to go to the same places on purpose because that way you get to meet these people. I know them by name, and you start to folksy with them. And eventually, I give them one of my books, and they're like, oh, how nice. And uh, eventually, all of a sudden, they get a smile, and sometimes they actually listen to the gospel. And, and, and he says, but wait a minute. And he says, I, I sent Titus uh, uh, to you. I knew he'd be a comfort and an encourager. Are you an encourager? Are you like a Barnabas, an encourager that when uh, uh, people see you, they're like, ah, man, I can't wait to see them. I can't wait to talk to them. They always got a smile on their face, they're always happy. Uh, uh, are they always happy? Are they always happy? No. Mm-mm. No. There's not a single person in this room that's happy 100% of the time, if you're honest. But when you see somebody else, it's like, others, Lord, yes, others. Let this my motto be, help me to live for others, Lord, that I might live like thee. And uh, all of a sudden, you take your mind off yourself and you you take your mind off of what you didn't get that you wanted, and it's like, what, what can I do to make somebody else happy today? What can I do to help that person in, in their walk? What can I do to encourage that poor uh, person that's struggling and going through sickness, maybe in pain, and maybe family issues, and maybe school issues, and maybe work issues or financial issues? What can I do to help the downcast, if you will? Verse 7, and not only his... Titus coming but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire your mourning your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more Paul says hey I know we were in conflict church of Corinth but Titus told me we're buddies again yeah uh, wow that I mean I, I got some joy in my heart And I love it. And there's there's some of you that are really good at this, and and you're encouragers. And uh, maybe uh, uh, during the week or after a message or something takes place, and I got one person, and and it's usually three words that I get from them, maybe once a month or so, something like that. Three words. I'm praying for... Oh, there's my math. I'm (laughs) praying for... Oh, yeah, the fourth word is you... I'm praying for you. That's all it says. And I know that person's praying for me, and they're sincere about it. Uh, uh, on occasion, somebody will send me a text or whatever or send me a card, and, and it's just nice. And they're like, well, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate you, appreciate Valerie. And, and it's like, wow, wow, that's very nice. What happens when you get a thank you card or somebody says something nice to you, they look at you and say, man, that's a, that's a pretty outfit. Now, guys don't say that to ladies. But, uh, well, that didn't get any response. Wow. Um, uh, uh, you can say that, but you've got to be very careful, okay? Um, uh, and there's, I mean, I'm, I'm very careful about that. But anyway, that's another subject. Uh, the issue being, how do you encourage somebody? Man, you're looking good today. I say that all the time. And I mean it. And, uh, and, and, and you know, what, what, what do you see as soon as I say that? Bing! Smile goes up. You look good today. I looked at Harley and I said, oh boy, no. Uh, <laughs> but he's looking good for the shape he's in. Uh, but boy, he's like, man, I got excited because I got a good report. For even if I, Paul, made you sorry with my letter. Uh-oh, okay, now here's, here's the meat of the message. Paul got really fed up with what the Corinthian church was doing. We don't have the letter that he wrote, but he jacked them up, so to speak. I mean, he got on them. He's like, listen, church, it's time that you got right with God. It's time you you, you stop living in sin. It's time you stop living like that old that, that corrupt Corinthian culture, and it's time you got right with God. And he chews them out. And what does he say? He said, man... I made you sorry with my letter. And he says, I don't regret that. You needed it. Yet you needed to get, you need to get punched a little bit. But then what's the next phrase? I do regret it. Why? He, he knew he had to say it. But man, it just killed him inside because he loved the people. And he's like, man, I don't regret it, but I do regret it. Per- I per- perceive that the same epistle made you sorry. In other words, they were upset, they were depressed, they were feeling horrible because of the conflict that they had with Paul. Now, I, Paul, rejoice, not that you... Now, again, we've got to keep this contextually correct, or we're going to have a real problem here. I rejoice not that you, Corinthian Christians, were made sorry, but that your sorrow, Christian, led to repentance. Now, we're going to go to the actual Greek word in a moment, but I'm going to give you the punchline here. And it's this word has been horribly misused, horribly mistranslated, a theological nightmare that's caused horrible doctrinal error. Repentance means literally a change of mind. A change of mind. I listened to Dr. Andy Woods, who many of you know. On this topic last week, and he made this statement. I loved it. It was right, and it was. And he's a, a extreme genius, and the guy is a genius. And he was going through the etymology of this particular word. Repentance means a change of mind, not a change of action. We have this false concept that repentance means that I'm going to get on my face and I'm going to confess all my sins and I'm repenting. That is not biblical repentance. Repentance means a change of mind. Let's see how that works out. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly, here it is, for godly sorrow. All right, wait a second. Peter! Oh boy, you're going to deny me three times, buddy. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Peter goes out. He denies Christ three times. What did he do? He falls on his face and begins to weep because he knew that he had disobeyed God. He got caught in his sin. And now all of a sudden he's like, ah, godly sorrow. Change of mind which would take place. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Comma. Bad place to put a comma. What it's really saying here. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation that is without regret. That's what it's really saying here. It's not saying, oh, you have godly salvation, and here's where the the doctrinal issue comes up. Well, godly sorrow will lead you to salvation. Well, wait a minute, who's he talking to here, Christians or non-Christians? He's talking to Christian people here. And he's talking about, listen, when you have godly sorrow, when you you really, you, you know you did wrong, you messed up, that repentance is not to be regretted. Literally meaning it's without regret. To have salvation, to be in Christ without regret. That is what repentance does. But the sorrow of the world, now he's going to the unsaved. What does the sorrow of the world produce? Well, that produces death but godly sorrow for God's people when they realize they've messed up and they come to the Lord and, and, and they have a literal change of mind. What's the word? Repentance. Metanoia. Now you're like, that's Greek to me. Well, it is to me too. And uh, it's important sometimes that we go to the original languages to get what it means. Not from some silly Commentary that somebody wrote and said, well, this is what it really means. No, it's not what it re- What does it really mean? Go to language. It means literally a change of mind and about face in your mind. It's very interesting when you go into the lexicons, which is the Greek explanation of words for metanoia. This is one of the few words that I've ever gone to, and this is the actual diagram in Lagos that comes up, repentance, a change of mind. Now, normally when you do a word study, there's going to be five, six, seven, eight different concepts involved with that word. This one is point blank, one concept, no other. That is like extremely rare in biblical words. So it's a a change of mind. Folks, when, when you do wrong, when you offend somebody, when you're in conflict, and you want to do right, what has to happen? If your mind doesn't change, what's going to happen? Nothing. Now, Here's, here's a, let's, let's just jump on this concept a little bit. If you have a change of mind, and it's like, okay, I was wrong. Well, Peter, I sinned. I betrayed Jesus. I denied him three times. My mind said, I'm going to protect myself. And all of a sudden, Peter says, he begins to cry. And his heart's broke. And he said... I'm going to stop denying Christ today. His mind changed from there to there. Would his actions subsequently change because of that? In all likelihood, yes. That's not what the word's referring to, the change of actions. It's referring to the change of mind. For godly sorrow works repentance specifically, and i am expanded this, for godly sorrow produces repentance, specifically a change in your mind that results in your salvation being without regret. If that was, uh, that is literally what that text is saying. I have no regrets. Thank God I'm saved. Thank God I'm, I made it right with that other person. Thank God that I had a change of mind, and now we're going down the right path. Here's another example about salvation in that same verse. What does salvation mean? This is the way, by the way, most Greek words come up in in the lexicons. Multiple different concepts, different ways that the word is used. Soteria is the word for salvation, also for deliverance, also spoken of as the gospel of Jesus, also talking about salvation as an event. So we have one, two, three four different ways in the Bible that one Greek word, "soteria" is used. It depends on the context. The word repentance, it's only used one way, period. So it's a change of mind uh, that God instills in somebody. Well, we'll close with this. Paul says, listen, based on your change, based on the repentance, if you will, that change of mind, here's all the things that came out of it. He says, listen, uh, 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 the change that's happened in you, uh, uh," he says, diligence, for observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what diligence to do right with Paul and others, what clearing of yourselves, the Greek word there for clearing is apologia. Have you ever heard of the word apologetics? Many of you love apologetics. It's it's what? The defense of the face. How to clear uh, uh, their name. That's where, what it's stating. What indignation. Do you know what the Corinthians did? They said, Pah! Man, did we blow it. We messed up. They were outraged at their own sinful behavior. What indignation. What fear. They finally said, Oh, boy. Cry. The, the, their heart was sorrowful. They realized uh, the wrong that had been committed. And they realized we need to have a proper fear of God and not a man. What vehement desire, what is he speaking of? The desire to be restored to Paul. And, and they're happy and, they're, and they're, they're rejoicing because, yeah, we were in conflict. We had these issues and now we're restored. Folks, when you're not in conflict, do you tend to be happy? No? When you're not in conflict, do you tend to be happier? I hope so. <laughs> Otherwise, we really got a problem this morning. I mean, there's joy. There ought to be joy and rejoicing and happiness and putting off all that old stuff and rejoicing who God is. What zeal they they got. What zeal to live for the Lord, that holiness and restoration he talked about in the first part of the chapter. What vindication. Ah! <sighs> Come here, Barney. Paul says, come on over here, buddy. Ah, I know we. We messed up, boy. We got out of sorts. We got mad at each other, and we were fussing, and I said some things I wish I wouldn't have said. And uh, Barney says, I'm sorry, Paul. You know, I'm trying to be a good encourager, and I know I got a little out of sorts. And uh, they hug and they make up, and life is good. And then and, and life goes on, and, and John Mark, Paul said, John Mark's a loser. I don't want that guy going on a trip with me. Uh, he's not going on a mission trip with me. Keep him out of my company later in bible it says uh, uh john mark was was a special servant along with the apostle Paul and and they uh they hugged they made up and life was good folks do you want to you want to have life good do you want to rejoice do you want to uh, uh, be able to say there's joy in serving Jesus do you want to be able to say uh, uh push the conflict out of the way I need to love folks I wasn't going to go here, but I'm going to take two more minutes go to Philippians chapter two we've gone here so often. This will change your life. Change your life. Philippians chapter 2. Would you listen carefully? Bible says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being what? Like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. You know why? Because it breeds conflict. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. I'm going low for a minute in the back. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, which is okay, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself, Jesus Christ, the kenosis passion, self-emptying himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, a bond service servant, and coming to the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. Jesus did what? He humbled himself. Get off of the platform. Put others ahead of yourself. Others, Lord. Yes, others. Let this my model be. Help me to live for others, Lord, that I might live like thee. Get yourself off the platform. Humble yourself. Eat the crow. Take the blame. It doesn't matter because for the cause of Christ let others be exalted and let us be humbled the same way that Jesus was. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for what Jesus means to us, those of us that place our faith and trust in him. And Father, I pray in these closing moments, Lord, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know that if Satan could do anything to disrupt a family, to disrupt a group, to disrupt a business, to disrupt a school, to disrupt a church. All he's got to do is start some stinky little conflict. Father, I pray all over the room this morning that we let the Holy Spirit do some work this morning. I know because there's so many people here this morning, there's conflicts all over this room. Maybe it's even internal. Maybe external. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we'll get off the platform this morning, that we'll get on our knees this morning and say, yes, Lord, I want to serve others. I'll, I'll stop being that way. I'll stop being critical. I'll stop being confrontational. I'll stop trying to have my way or no way. Folks, I'm guaranteeing you, if you'll do that, it'll change your life just like Philippians 2 said. Would you follow Jesus this morning? Would you get off the platform? Would you get down and humble yourself and say, Lord, please help me to love folks. Help me not to be so selfish. Help me not to be so concerned about my own needs, but to help others, just like Jesus did. Would you do it? Right there where you are, make that chair an old-fashioned altar right now and ask the Lord to help you. I'll tell you, it'll transform your life. You'll never be happier. If you're here this morning, you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ. You don't know if you died, you go to heaven. Let me tell you how you can go to heaven. Christians, praying, please. If you're here this morning and, and and you don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you were to die, you'd go to heaven. Four quick things God tells us. Number one, he said we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, we're all sinners. Me too. And the Bible says we got what we deserved. Every single one of us would spend eternity in an awful place called the lake of fire or in that politically incorrect term today, hell. Revelation twenty one eight. But Jesus Christ, God's Son, came down from heaven, died on the cross for your sins, was buried, and three days later rose from the dead to prove he was God. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. And Jesus made it very clear. The reason he did that, the reason he died, was buried, and rose again was to pay for your sins and for mine. And he says, listen, do you want to go to heaven when you die? I got a free gift for you this morning, but you got to take it. You've got to accept it. The gift is out there right in front of you. You say, I don't see it. It's there. What is that gift? It's called eternal life with Jesus. We'll just say one verse. For God so loved the world, that's each one of us, that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever anyone who placed their faith and trust in him, in other words, will do what? Will believe on him, will not perish or go to hell but have everlasting life. For God did not send His son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, through what Jesus did, could be saved. Would you receive that free gift? You say, well, how do I do it? It's by faith. Just take it. Receive it. Accept it. Accept that you're a sinner. Accept you don't deserve heaven. Accept what Jesus did on the cross for you. And God says, if you'll put your faith in him this morning, heaven will be your home. Did you receive Jesus by faith this morning? Did you realize you can't earn heaven You can't earn it. It's only by faith. Did you do it? Well, I'd like to pray a prayer of thanksgiving. The prayer's not what saves you. It's just documenting to the Lord what uh, you did in your heart this morning. Maybe you'd like to say something like this privately. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I knew that when I walked in here this morning. And I know I, I don't deserve to go to heaven because I am a sinner. But I believe with all my heart this morning that Jesus Christ, God's Son, came down from heaven, died on the cross for my sins, was buried, and three days later rose from the dead. And this morning I'm receiving that free gift of eternal life by placing my faith in what Jesus did for me. Thank you for saving me and promising to take me to heaven when I breathe my last breath. Father, sealed this.